when you're talking about you know an exit of a hundred million dollars or fifty million dollars, the valuation you go in at matters a ton. Welcome to the Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate. Today, we've got an incredible episode. The Syndicate, if you guys have just tuned in, is pretty cool. What we do, we get the best angel investors, venture capitalists, and startup founders from around the world, specifically early stage, to talk about what they're doing, what they've learned, the mistakes they've made, and we steal all of their best tips, tricks, and tactics. And today we've got someone who I imagine has tons of successes, tons of failures, and plenty to share. Christopher Mirabile. Thanks for coming today, Chris. Christopher. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm terrible. I'm terrible with names, so I'm going to see how it goes with this. Don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So Christopher's running one of the largest angel networks, if not the largest in the country, the Launchpad Venture Group. He's a lecturer at Babson. He's a constant contributor to Inc. And Angel Angel Capital Association, another one of the large angel networks. He's um. He's an incredibly busy guy. Oh, and by the way, he runs the one and only good software to run your portfolio, Seraph. So check it out if you guys need a good system to manage your portfolio. But thanks for coming today, Christopher. Thanks for the plug. Hey, great to be here. Delighted to, delighted to finally catch up with you. Yeah, my goal with those plugs is to absolutely just tank it and then say, okay, so basically what's your story? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I'm a full-time angel based in the East Coast, based in Boston, which is just an awesome city to um, to be in. I sort of think of Boston as um, having all kinds of uh, a really good startup activity like the Valley, but no hype. <laughs> I've heard great things. I listened to the Angel Invest Boston podcast. Actually, we were talking about it earlier with Sal Daher or Dal. I, I Sal, Sal Daher, yeah. Yeah, he, he seems to be doing really well. I've heard a lot about you guys. I've heard a lot about Boston. So tell me, Boston, what do I need to know? What do people need to know? Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, birthplace of the modern venture capital industry in the post-war years was, was in Boston and the, and, uh, the, the two and 20 model and, you know, the early, uh, mass miracle with the, the, the mainframe computer companies and the mini computers and all that sort of stuff, uh, was here. And as a result, we have a real legacy in, uh, in enterprise software and in, in the last few decades, with all the research and teaching hospitals, uh, the life sciences and biotech has been has been huge. And obviously, I don't know the exact count, but something like a billion colleges here. <laughs> and uh, and there's just uh, young talent all over the city. I think uh, three or four hundred thousand college kids in Boston. Yeah, Boston seems really incredible. And the public transit is pretty good, too, right? Yeah, although they close it too early. I think they stop rolling the uh, MBTA at about two in the morning. So so if you're going out for a late night, you got to you gotta get an Uber or Lyft on the way home. Are you going out for a late night? <laughs> not me. Not anymore. I'm, I'm too old for that stuff. Uh, we just called him on it. So what are you focusing your time on? So, uh, so you know, Launchpad's, Launchpad's a beast. Um, as you said, it's a classic angel network. Uh, it's 150 members. We capped ourselves at 150. Uh, about six years ago, and have managed to that number ever since. 
And we focused, as you might expect, on sort of enterprise software is about a third of our portfolio and about a third of our deal flow. Uh, life sciences, mostly we do uh, medical device, diagnostics, healthcare IT, and then digital health, you know, quantified self, you know, kind of stuff. And then the final third of what we do is a mixture of ed tech and green tech and then some miscellaneous deals. And um, running, that's a bit of busy, as you as you flatteringly said, it is a, it's a large and, and busy network in terms of both deal volume and dollars invested. So, you know, in a typical year, we're putting about 8 million to work into 8 to 10 new companies, uh, new to our portfolio. And then we do in an average year, 25 to 35 follow-on rounds into portfolio companies. So we have about, at this point, our active portfolio companies that are, you know, still uh, haven't exited is about 65 portfolio companies. We've done about a hundred. Yeah, we've done about a hundred deals in our history, which goes back to about the year 2000. Okay. Sounds like pretty solid track record. Why 150? It's, uh, I don't want to imply there's too much science to it, but there is a little social science that suggests that that's sort of the number of of, uh, loose connections that people can manage. And there's some organizational theory that suggests that when you get a company beyond 150, management style has to change. It's a little bit like um, parenting. You know, when you have two kids, you can do man-on-man defense. And when you have three, you got to go zone. Uh, <laughs> so, so we just sort of feel like, uh, you know, angel investing is, in my view, angel groups exist to resolve a tension between two realities. On the one hand, these these are risky early stage deals, and you need to be very diversified. You need to be in a lot of deals to uh, ensure a good return. But on the other hand, these are very labor intensive deals. Someone has to sort of go find the company, scout it, screen it. It needs to pitch. They need to do diligence and deal leadership and syndicating the deal. And then when you've done all that, the real work of making the company successful begins. And so how do you get simultaneously diversified into a lot of something that's very labor intensive? And that's really how the angel network adds value is that you get to know your co-investors and you sit on a board for me and I sit on a board for you and we both get a properly supervised, two properly supervised investments. And so 150 feels like about as big as you can get and still have that really good fabric of trust and knowledge between people. Devil's advocate, why not just have two sets of 150? Well, you could and sort of have two halves of the group that kind of are like syndication partners to each other. Uh, We could if we wanted to, but I think at some point your portfolio becomes hard to manage and you add value to and supervise. And we're probably, you know, at the at the point now, luckily, some of our more mature companies really require less angel input. In fact, you know, in many cases, they want less angel input. So <laughs> we're from the government. We're here to help. So, um, you know, I, what we have done is we actually, when we meet, we have a suburban forum and a downtown forum each month. So members can choose whether they want to go in the city or in the burbs. And that keeps the meeting size manageable. But yeah, I mean, I suppose if we wanted to go big, we could add another 150 in some other chapter. But trust me, we don't. (laughs) How do you go from being that cool kid the startups want to suddenly being like that older adult they never want to be seen with, the older parent? Well, you know, I think in a lot of ways, 
the what the game that you're trying to play as an angel is you know in the early days when money is scarce and the come and the entrepreneurs are sort of new to the whole thing you know they're actually pretty grateful for the assistance and your your job is to try to build enough of a relationship and add enough value that they kind of want you to stay around even as the investor base changes right and you they bring in more and more institutional money so we sort of um we sort of see it as a as a challenge of trying to add value, whether it's directly in the person of the board delegate or whether it's the board delegate understanding there's a problem and then going out into the network or into the community and finding help through, you know, through someone else. What have you learned from doing all this? You've managed angel investors, you've managed startups, and you're working with a lot of early stage companies as well. Yeah, I mean... uh a lot of startups. I, I, one thing I've learned is that startups in, invent new ways to fail every day. <laughs> That's one thing I've learned. Uh, they're very creative and resourceful in that regard. But as a direct, I'm a, I've been a full-time angel for 10 years. So I, I directly myself invested in uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 companies, uh, maybe a, a few more than that. And I'm in a couple of funds in San Diego. So there's another, you know, 60 or so companies there. And I'm a, I'm a GP in a small angel fund that's done about 30 companies and Launchpad's got about a hundred. So you see, you see a lot of patterns. And I think probably the biggest learning for me is that it's really about the team. And I know that sounds incredibly trite, but I have seen more situations where teams just figure it out. Um, the, the original hypothesis was wrong. I mean, I can't tell you the number of wins. If you, if you ask angels and they're really honest, a lot of times you have a win and you end up being right, but you were right for the wrong reasons. And you got out alive basically because of the team. What's the best team you've ever seen? Well, uh, we, we've seen some, some, some pretty cool teams. I mean, I guess it depends in some ways whether you're looking for, you know, tenacity, how, how you describe best. But I, I think, uh, one, one answer I give is, the difference between a good and a great CEO is that a good CEO will pivot when market conditions dictate. A great CEO will pivot in a capital efficient way and, and sort of recognizes not working, having a constant tinkering mentality and, and constantly be sort of changing the direction and focus of the company and not waiting until your resources are gone as a way of telling you that you've hit a wall. How do you know when you hit a wall and you have to run through a wall? Yeah. I mean, in other words, I really do believe there is a market on the other side of that wall and I'm clearly just not selling correctly or I'm not putting enough resources into selling. And that's a, that's a really hard question. I think in some ways it, it's, it's in the data. It's in the, what you're hearing from the customers. And I, I think the CEOs who give me the most comfort are the ones who I feel like they're really engaging with their market and they're really talking to the customers and they're understanding the need and they have an instinctual sense for where the market is going and is gonna and how it's gonna develop. And you know, you you've seen founders who are sort of the opposite. They get increasingly frustrated and beaten down as different things they try aren't working, and they remain sort of attached, almost sentimentally attached to the original hypothesis. And, and it's almost a sort of a helplessness sets in 
and 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 often you don't recognize it until after the fact. But those are the situations you're trying to avoid for sure. So you ask everyone what's their thesis, what's their philosophy, and they're going to say some extension of a great team solving a big problem in a big market. Let me change that a little bit. What do you look for in a team? And everyone's going to say a great team with tenacity. So let's go even more specific. Do you have a do you have a ratio of founders, a ratio of skills that you like to look at? So, I mean, all things being equal, you'd rather invest in a more complete team where most of the technical risk has been eliminated that's really right at the point of market entry so that your money is really going into sales and marketing, not into regulatory compliance, not into product development and so forth. So I, I sort of favor teams that are greater than one. I think two, three, four is kind of optimal. When I get into four, five, six founders, I get nervous because I really believe that, that startups outgrow their founders. That's just a, that's a fact of life. And so the more founders there are, the more leakage in terms of capitalization, the harder it is to make the founder economics work for the superstars on the team because they've split the company five different ways. And the more potential there is for distraction and tension and dissident shareholders. So I look for teams that are two, three, four, and I think three or four is kind of optimal because this notion of completeness where you can you can have key skills on the founding team. So you can have someone who has a little bit of a business bent. You can have someone who's got a little bit of a sales and marketing flair. And you can find someone who really is pretty deeply technical, uh, either uh, a good product manager or just a good coder. And depending on what you have, you end up having to supplement the team during the first couple of years accordingly. But I, I like to sort of, in a perfect world, I'll get that completeness. I I view outsourced tech as as a yellow flag because it, it it can be done, but a tech-centric company that's outsourcing its tech is, I think, a disaster waiting to happen. Th- those companies get bad gas mileage for their money. You know, uh, they you raise money. Do you mean hiring or do you mean outsourcing? No, I mean I mean outsourcing. I mean like a company that says, "Oh, we've got some people in India or." Uh, some folks, you know, two states over who are uh, building our tech for us. And then once our tech is built, then, you know, we're going to be all set. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. Your product's never finished. And, you know, it, it, when it's a tech-centric company and they don't have a technical founder and they don't have that technology team on board, I think they, first of all, they're paying a margin on every line of code they commission. And second of all, they're not as close to the code and the, and the cycle of revision and improvement is just much slower. And, and it just doesn't work out as well. So I like to see that technical skill set on the founding team. I would push back a little bit in the onboard versus on sites thing. So for instance, if you have a tech team in San Francisco versus having your team and then part of your team is on the ground, for instance, in Kiev, Ukraine, or in other places where you can have a more efficient team. I don't care about that. I don't mind that. They don't have to be geographically proximate. I mean, you know, huge time zone and language issues can introduce wrinkles. I just mean if the people writing your product are consultants for hire who have 12 other client priorities. Yeah, then then, then you're in trouble because you need need to crush through that. So how how have you taken all of this? So you're a guest lecturer at Babson talking about entrepreneurship. What do you tell founders? What do you tell students? Well, so the class I teach, uh, I'm 
sort of on sabbatical right now, uh, given my commitment to the Angel Capital Association, having just finished up a chairmanship at the ACA. But uh, I teach a class that's sort of all about the different sections of a business plan. It's it's about it's about building a startup from scratch, and we we spend it's thirteen weeks, and we spend different you know topics each week, and I bring a lot of entrepreneurs into the into the classroom uh, to bring concepts to life, but. Uh, you know, team formation is the most mysterious and most important part of startups. And I'm always fascinated to hear how teams came together, where they met and, and how they met. Um, and I think a lot, of, uh, a lot of schools don't do a great job with what I might describe as founder dating. I think in some communities, there are a lot of entrepreneurial collisions. And at some schools, uh, like I think MIT has done a pretty good job with collisions between the, the business kids at the Sloan School and the engineering kids elsewhere, you know, in the engineering department, they do a pretty good job creating those collisions. But in many places, they don't. And so I talk a lot to my kids about chemistry and about the stress and ambiguity and loneliness of running a startup and the importance of picking a co-founder. Sometimes I, I joke that the, do you know what the first real market test that every startup faces? No. Can you attract a co-founder? Right. A team. And a team around it. And, and there was, a, there was an interesting uh, article and I wish I could cite it. Uh, maybe we can find it and put it in the show notes, but, um, it was talking about how the person, the first person to stand up and, and start dancing at the outdoor music festival is not the brave one. They're just nuts. It's the second one who stands up and makes it a movement that's the brave one. And, uh, and it's kind of an interesting concept when you think about it in terms of startups. And so we talk about that. And then I also, you know, we'll talk about on that team thing, we'll talk about, you know, a founders obsess about dilution and pre-money valuation. And I always make the point that, you know, starting a company with the bros who are your college roommates and worrying about pre-money is like locking the front door and leaving the screen door and back, you know, swinging in the wind because it's not the pre-money valuation that's a source of dilution. It's giving 30% of your company to your deadwood, you know, college roommate. Uh, that's dilution. <laughs> uh, so, you know, picking that team is crucially important. I would agree. I would say the one thing I would say with that, with the money valuations is, Investors say that a lot about founders, but founders have equally good rights to say that about investors because a lot of times investors are picking hairs. Whereas if you're jumping on a train that's going big and turning into a rocket ship, it doesn't matter if it's three or four or five. It's it's still going to be. You know, a lot of people say that. And I think if you're talking about global consumer facing opportunities like smartphones or Uber or Google or Facebook, absolutely true. When you're talking about a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar outcome, whether the pre-money was three, four, five, six, when you go in, isn't going to change your results. But that's, that's like talking about the Loch Ness Monster and generalizing, or, or unicorns and generalizing about all animals from that. Those companies are incredibly rare. And most companies get harvested for much less money than that. As you know, I don't, you don't need me to tell you the IPO is gone and never coming back except for the biggest companies. And so most companies that get any liquidity and drive any returns for their investors are going to get there through M&A. And 
the average M&A deal in this country is somewhere between 20 and 40 million bucks. Now, I'd prefer 250 or 500 million, but anybody who reads TechCrunch knows that even 250, 500 million dollar exits are rare. They're not, they're not daily, they're you know, monthly or weekly at best. And, and so when you're talking about you know, an exit of $100 million or $50 million, well, valuation you go in at matters a ton. I would agree, although I think, I feel like we will start to see changes in the IPOs, especially mm-hmm. as ICOs begin to become actual IPOs, because ultimately, ultimately, tokens are going to become stocks. Because it makes no sense to have a stupid, silly old system that's inefficient when you can make it more transparent and fast. I, I agree with much of what you just said, but not all of it. So I think you're absolutely right that we're going to see reform in the IPO market. In fact, uh, Commissioner Clayton has made that a priority, and we're engaged on the Hill. And the SEC traditionally has had two responsibilities. You know, One is regulating the markets and pre- preventing fraud and all those kinds of traditional things. And the other is capital formation. And that pendulum swings back and forth. And I think that the learning that we all have from sort of the Sarbanes-Oxley and Enron WorldCom era and the selective disclosure rules and some of the changes to the brokerage industry and the stock analyst coverage are that we went a little too far and we really killed the sub $100 million IPO. And I think it's a priority to try and bring it back. So I am hopeful that we will see smaller IPOs become an option. However, the initial coin offerings, I'm not sure that's going to work out great. And I'm not sure that's going to become a mainstream way of raising money that works over the long term. I do think it will have an effect on IPOs and put pressure on IPOs to be more competitive, if you will. But I know that the ICOs are an enforcement priority for the SEC, and they are really concerned about investor fraud. Oh, they're all um, ju- they're all junk right now. I'm I'm very long on the long term and I'm very small on the short term because it's a bubble it's yeah. going to pop, but at the same time it's in my opinion it's the dot com era going at an exponential speed with faster money getting dumber money in faster. It's going to pop, yeah. but ultimately it's a significantly faster, easier, more efficient way of running the stock market. I feel like eventually a token-based blockchain will replace the stock markets unless they buy them. I think you're very perceptive in that regard. I mean, I think we do have a lot of layers on um, the street, you know, but at the end of the day, all of the, all of the baggage of being a public company boils down to disclosure. And when we built our securities market in the 1930s, we had a decision to make as a country. We, the, we could either regulate the quality of offerings or we could regulate the quality of disclosure. And uh, Felix Frankfurter was the, the one who said it best. He said, sunshine is the best disinfectant. And we went for a disclosure-based approach. We said, anybody can do an IPO and any piece of crap they want, and we don't care, as long as they discuss the risks accurately and thoroughly. And so all the baggage of being in the public markets is about disclosing and describing your business, management discussion and analysis and everything else. And it's hard to know how you ever get around that. I mean, that's one of my beefs with this crowdfunding regulation CF, you know, unaccredited investor crowdfunding is that at the end of the day, those are companies with with disclosure obligations. Only for one year. 
I think it's longer. I think it's, it's those disclosure obligations last until you redeem your regulation CF shareholders. They're entitled to regular reporting and compliance stuff for, forever. I just, I just had Ken Wynn, the, the founder of Republic, on. And based, mm-hmm. off, based off of what he was saying, it's one year worth of public reporting. And after that, unless you want to raise more money via, via a Reg D model, then the, the reporting challenges weren't there because otherwise it would be crippling. Yeah, I'd have to, um, I'd have to go back and, and look at that. It may be a semantic issue, but you may be talking about the difference between a 33-act IPO registration process versus 34-act regular reporting. I think you can have an offering that runs for up to a year, and when you're in that offering process, heightened disclosure applies. But once you've got those shareholders on board, you are obligated to report to them, perhaps at a lesser, lesser uh, amount, but it's, a, it's an ongoing responsibility. Anyway, it's more detail than we need here. Yeah, understood. Anyways, I think the ICOs will have the same, uh, they'll have similar types of regulations. It's just you won't have to deal with Goldman to do it, and where yep. Goldman makes money if you win, makes money if you lose, and then sells you out in the back. But um, yep. that's, a, that's a whole nother story. So talk to me. A little bit more about the startups you guys are working with. You're seeing how you're investing and how your how your whole network works. Yeah. So uh, the 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 key for us is having that group of people. You know, we really focus and recruit active angels, and we we really have a a bias that the human capital is as important as the financial capital in getting these companies to be successful. And so we're uh, a sort of old school in the sense that we really think every round needs professional deal leadership and there needs to be a plan for staging capital in the company. So you need to be, when you're setting the pre-money, you need to be thinking about the post-money and where's the next round, what type of investor is going to supply the next round. And, and is the company going to raise enough to be in a place where it's appropriate and a good fit for the next kind of investor? And increasingly, I think the trend that you and I are seeing over the last decade or two is that organized, uh, you know, the, the groups of angels are taking companies farther. The Series A is uh, a little harder to get. Maybe Silicon Valley is a unique market, but a lot of VCs, for reasons having to do with uh, management and fund size, a lot of VCs are sort of pulling back a little bit on throwing three or four or five million dollars at any startup. And I think that angels are, they're looking for higher growth rates on SaaS and, you know, and higher revenue achievement levels and so forth. So angels are carrying startups longer, I think, than they used to. And uh, so oftentimes part of your calculus is, is the next round is going to come not from institutional VCs, but from another dose of angels. So in any event, uh, we believe that, uh, that putting a deal together requires someone to think that stuff through and someone to take point on putting together a set of deal terms that is syndicatable and having someone uh, think about how capital is going to get staged and have someone serve on the board. So we really focus on active angels that want to be involved in, in the deals that they do. Now, you don't have to be involved in every single one of your companies, but somebody does. And, uh, and that gets back to that idea of you sitting on a board for me and me sitting on a board for you. Uh, so that said, we're in a really, really hot and busy entrepreneurial market. 
And we like to think of it if there's an innovation outflow pipe anywhere in the Boston area, I want a Launchpad member with a bucket underneath it. I want the members being out in the community, being mentors, being advisors, being judges of business plans at schools, being in the incubators, being in the accelerators, getting out there and meeting interesting teams and, and bringing, bringing them in. The best deal flow we get is the stuff where we met and we found it, not the stuff that just flies in over the transom. Carrie? No, no Carrie. Our group is uh, totally an affiliation model where people pay dues to be in the group and they pay no management fee, no carry, no facility fee, no admin fee, nothing. They, 100% of their money goes into preferred stock. What do you think about the future with networks, syndicates, and then early stage seed VCs? So it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting time and, and things, things are sort of blending together a little bit. But in a lot of ways, everything that's old is new again. Everything that's new is, is really just new words for the same kinds of things. I think, for example, a lot of the young micro VCs and angel funds, and they're really just the young VCs of our generation. And the VC industry has always had funds form, raise a couple of funds over time and get bigger and go later and newer VCs form up underneath them and they grow bigger. And so I think that's a natural cycle. And I think in a lot of ways, you see that in, in computing technology, right? You know, on some level, it's just different buzzwords each decade, but it has to do with, you know, where the computing power resides, how far out on the edge of the network. And, and you know, in some ways, there are certain computer science parallels between the cloud and the mainframe. Now, admittedly, that's a tortured and, you know, analogy, but, you know, it's, it's just all about where the computing is occurring. And so, so I think our market is like that. Everything that's old is new again. But I think that the, the one area where I get a little bit nervous is because the team is so important, I think that it's difficult to succeed as an angel by remote control. There are people who think that you can sit at home in your bunny slippers with your computer mouse and click some buttons and be a successful angel. And you might, you might get lucky and it might be that every deal you invest in, uh, somebody has vetted the team and somebody has thought about the deal terms and somebody has volunteered to support and help the company, but not necessarily. And so I think that I get a little bit nervous where uh, every deal has room for some passive investors. But I think you have to be careful and you have to think about that process of who is vetting these deals and do they just have social momentum or do they have real value? Um, is there real, is this a good team and is this a really, uh, is there value being created here? So I think technology is very powerful and it allows us to do things we couldn't do before, but it doesn't remove the laws of physics there's still going to be gravity. So for example, just because technology makes it possible to sell furniture on the internet, it doesn't mean that you can sell furniture on the internet at negative margins and make money. And, and so I think that you have to be a little bit careful about shortcuts. And I worry about fees stacking on top of fees and people making assumptions that 
just because this well-known name is in charge of this deal, someone's thought, thought through the diligence and understands the team's motivations and the alignment between the founders and the investors and the plan for growth and staging. So, so I'm a, I'm a little bit old-fashioned in some ways. I, I, I kind of think that there's no free lunch in what we do. But you're in a couple funds. And technically, they, they own your money and, and eat a little they, bit of lunch, they, too. Well, they do. And um, in both cases, they're super low-cost funds. And they're, they're a, in one case, it's a vertical diversification play. It's, a, it's a, a couple of ed tech funds where I'm not an ed tech specialist. And they're getting me in an, in, into a deal flow. And it's a relatively small allocation of my portfolio. And I'm sort of deferring to their expertise in that space. In the other fund, it's a geographical diversification play for me where I'm a passive investor in those deals, but I trust the people doing the deals. And this is actually a fund with a very low carry and no management fee. And so, you know, I'm, I'm saying I'd like to be in some of those Southern California deals that I would not be in otherwise. So I think there's room for that. There's a place for that, but there's not you can't do your entire angel career by remote control. You, you, might, you might be able to get away with it, but I think you're taking on risk. You're not getting paid to take on. I would agree, but you're also getting in deals that you have no business being in. So in a lot of ways, if, if you know what you're doing, you know who you're working with, and you're just increasing your deal flow, if you're able to see more deals and, not, and you think of yourself as a somewhat sophisticated investor, and you can also reach out and talk to the companies, I agree with you that there are better ways to do it, and it is better when you can do it with companies that you see. But if you're not seeing enough companies, so if you are geographically remote, I think it's a really, really good way, especially to get into angel investing. And if you're yeah. outside of if you're outside of the typical the the big boys areas, then it makes it yeah. it makes it easier. I, want, I understand that perspective. Yeah, I want to jump into the lightning round. How's that sound, Christopher? Sounds great. What's the first deal you did? Uh, it was a company called. Web Notes, which became uh, Crocodoc and ended up selling to Box.com, and they were rendering PDFs and HTML5 on the web. Oh, I think I've heard about this company, and Box used them so that you could see the little previews of whatever you were doing. Yep. Oh, yep. I've heard an interview. These guys did really well. Ryan D'Amico. It wasn't a huge exit, but yeah, they did nicely. And, and uh, I think they were early in, I think they were in Y Combinator, right after Y Combinator moved out, uh, moved out to California. Where was YC was like, before? Well, no, they were in Boston and they were in California and they focused on California and around, I want to say 2009 or 10, somewhere in that time frame. Okay. What are you excited about today? I think, you know, machine learning and AI are high up on the hype cycle, but I think that statistics informed decision making is real and, and pretty exciting. I think sensors and sort of the IoT space is overhyped as well, but quite real. Like you, I believe that distributed ledger, you know, the blockchain technologies have a lot of potential. I think of it as applied blockchain. Not a, it's not an end, it's a means to an end. So for example, we're in a company that is using blockchain to help really big banks manage their know, the, know your customer requirements, right? So using blockchain for identity management. And I think that's an example of the kinds of exciting stuff we're going we're gonna to see there. I think, uh, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles, drones, cars, those kinds of things are interesting. I'm in a company called Peloton, which was just written up in the Wall Street Journal. 
doing the uh, truck convoys where the trucks link up and have tremendous fuel savings and safety increases by having the truck behind be under computer control of the truck in front. So they get a, both trucks get a fuel savings and you get two drivers and paying attention. It's pretty, it's pretty cool tech. Joshua Switkis is the name. So, so I think those are pretty exciting spaces. I think that we're at an interesting time in our industry. I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like in some ways we're sort of hanging around trying to figure out what the next big thing is going to be. I mean, clearly the internet was a huge driver and creator of value in the mid, mid and late 90s. And obviously the mobile and smartphone resolu- re- revolution was sort of a big creator of value and, dis- and, and disruption. Cloud and SaaS are, I think, obvious echoes of that and, and obvious places where, you know, if you're going to have a really mobile device, the compute, some of the compute needs to be done on the server side. So I think a lot of us are sort of going, what's going to be the next huge wave? And I don't really know what it is. You know, there are various candidates, AR, VR, autonomous driving, machine learning, AI, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords being thrown around. And I don't know if I'm smart enough to know which one is really going to be the platform for the future. I will say I'm a lot more bullish on AR than VR. I think there are going to be a lot more near-term business applications for AR than there are going to be for VR. And also, let's face it, VR is kind of just a sad future. Yeah. Um, well, two big wins today, two biggest wins today. We had a pretty interesting company that was doing a point of sale couponing and uh, helping companies do uh, electronic couponing and learning about their consumers. And we ended up selling that to Google a few years ago. We had a really cool company that was um, a mobile device kind of in the construction industry that was helping with managing of blueprints in the field. And they were acquired by Autodesk. That was a good exit. And we have a a bunch of companies that uh, have really sort of started to raise at high valuations. And we've had some liquidity coming out of those at at very good multiples. So for example, um, Easy Cater is a company that's raised a lot of money that's focusing on uh, meal delivery in the workplace. We've had, uh, we have a company that's doing CT, uh, mobile CT scanner, uh, that's uh, valued uh, in extremely high valuation. Uh, we were early investors in a company called Localytics, which is mobile analytics and advertising in the app space. And we, uh, we are early investors in Zagster, which is one of the leading dockless bike sharing programs. So those are some of the more exciting companies in our portfolio. Big wins are fun. Anti-portfolio is always fun. Who's the biggest companies you've missed? Well, probably the one, and I don't, I don't think we even looked at it, but one that hurts a little bit is Crashlytics popped up in Boston really pretty quickly and then got acquired by Twitter at a time when the fail whale was, was really plaguing Twitter. And I think that was in the neighborhood of a 10x for the, for the sort of local angels. And that would have been a sweet one. And, and we just, didn't look at it. And we probably would have invested if we had. It was in our space, but we just didn't catch it and didn't look at it. So we talked a little bit about this. What field's going to dominate the next 10 years in exits, IPOs? That's a really, that's a great question. God, if I wish I, if I knew that I wouldn't be talking to you, I'd be off investing in it, right? Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, I think that 
I, I think that sensors, like the way your iPhone is going to recognize your face, one of our more interesting companies is doing really cutting edge image analysis. So for example, they can use photographs to build better and more complete lookalike audiences than Facebook can. So Facebook will give you, say, here's a set of descriptors using Facebook's descriptors, and you say, give me a lookalike audience, and Facebook will miss 30% of the potential audience. And these guys can find that other 30 using photos. So there's some, so I think that, I think machine vision sensors, that kind of stuff to me as we're pushing compute farther and farther and farther out onto the network. I think that's a really, really important area. You know, we have sensors and GPS in farm equipment now, right? However, all that stuff's insecure, right? So I think cybers, <laughs> cyber security is a really big space too. And that's an area where we're paying a lot of attention. And blockchain may help with that. I would agree. I think it's a little bit overhyped and let's make a blockchain this, the blockchain that, even yeah. when it doesn't make sense. I have something interesting to talk to you about after the show about that. Sure. Well, we're going to have to skip that question because we've kind of nailed the overhyped a bit. So give me a productivity hack. Getting up really early and just trying to bang the inbox. I have a lot of, uh, a lot of my productivity hacks are around email. So I'll tell you a little bit about what I do with my email. I use a VIP list to make sure that I'm getting the messages from the important people. And that's the mailbox I hit first. And then I use a bunch of smart mailboxes to filter mail into other things, sort of like the way Google separates promotions. Um, and I have a mailbox that certain keywords like unsubscribe. And so uh, I get it. I get it. And I process a lot of email and I use a variety of hacks to keep the inbox at zero and, and process them really quickly. So that's that's one. Another thing uh, I try to do is I try to never be on the phone when I'm not moving or moving when I'm not on the phone. <laughs> so I try to use transit time to take care of calls and I try to use exercise time to take care of calls or call time to take care of exercise. So I have a treadmill desk and uh, I try to keep moving a lot. And when you have you've extra had, time there, you're listening to the Syndicate podcast, of course. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, Christopher, I know you're an incredibly busy guy. We, had, we talked about the hard cut. I know you've got some stuff coming up. My question for you is, what's the one thing I didn't ask you about that I probably should have? Well, um, you could ask me what we're doing to try to make the world a better place for female entrepreneurs. And I wish I had a silver bullet, but I... Uh, it's a bunch of subtle stuff having to do with our culture and the expectations we set of our investors and how we conduct ourselves. And a pretty deeply held belief, really two beliefs, that diverse teams, entrepreneurial teams perform better and diverse investing teams make better decisions. So, you know, various estimates differ. There's something on the order of 10% of angels are. Uh, women, which is appallingly low. We're in the low 20% range, so twice as good as average, but a ways to go on that. And uh, I forget the exact, I can look at the statistics, but we've ended up backing uh, 13 or 15 female CEOs and try to conduct ourselves in a manner that feels really comfortable and professional for all different kinds of entrepreneurs. So let me give you that. Yeah, about 20% of our portfolio is female CEOs. 
So here's a here's a hard question. How do you do that without changing requirements? So for instance, I was listening to I don't remember what it was, and it was talking about how to be in the military, you had you had to allow females into the military, but there were differences in terms of the performance numbers you have to hit. And if I think about a soldier and I have someone who can carry me and someone who can't, it's it's kind of it's a wishy-washy type of I don't know, I might get shot in the head. But how do you how do you not overcommit and not undercommit, if that makes sense? Well it's a I mean it's a it's like a high school debate tactic in some ways to pick an extreme example. I mean, surely if um surely if uh getting a wounded soldier carried back somewhere is the example, then then physical strength is an important criteria. But fortunately physical strength isn't a criteria for uh, being an angel investor, <laughs> maybe mental stamina is, but not physical. No, no, strength. not angel, not angels. So the ones you're investing in, how do you invest in someone without giving extra points where you wouldn't to a, a guy when you're well, thinking about that? I think I think it it, it it it's your view of the world, and it, and it's you know we we didn't we didn't end up digging that deep into the attributes of a great entrepreneur, but for me, and certainly tenacity and those kinds. Of, but, but for me, it's really a high EQ. I mean, obviously they have to have a high IQ. But great leaders get things done through other people. And so I think there's a lot of things that go into being grace and grace under pressure and having a good sense of humor and a good perspective. All those things sort of boil down to people skills and EQ. And fortunately, that is not, uh, that's a totally gender blind. Uh, totally gender blind criteria. So I think that there's just nothing about being a startup CEO that requires you to be one gender or the other. Uh, so I don't really, I don't need to get into the affirmative action business because there are such fantastic female CEOs and CEOs of all different colors and backgrounds and so forth. So we try to just challenge bias in, in, in how the way we think and the way we speak. To be fair, I would say that girls probably have more EQ than guys do. That's, that's my well, personal opinion. I didn't, I didn't, I know that the, um, I know that the syndicate has a big audience and I assume some of them are men. So I didn't want to go too far out on a limb and say that. Oh, we all know, we all know, we all know. It. We all know, it. <laughs> you know it's, but, but you might, you might be right about that. <laughs> just don't tell my wife. <laughs> Christopher, I want to thank you for coming on, for sharing an interesting story, tons of unique, helpful strategies, tactics, mistakes, is where is the best place for people to reach out to you and say you're freaking awesome? Well, there is a contact form on uh, on on Launchpad. You can reach me on Twitter at c mirabile m i r a b i l e, and uh, I do have a column in Inc. Magazine for entrepreneurs. And the, I've done a ton of my angel thinking and writing is out loud on the Seraph Compass S E R A F. If you search S E R A F Compass, you can find probably 200 or more pieces, articles and bits of content that my partner and I have written and we've put them together into eBooks and some hardcover books. So everything that I think as an angel is written down somewhere. And I, you know, I'd encourage people who want to go find it to go look there. And from what I've heard, this is the only angel investor portfolio management that isn't garbage. It, it, it's working pretty well. Customers are pretty happy. And as part of sort of marketing it and giving back to the community, the Compass is the product's blog. And that blog has just a ton of stuff in it. 
And this is not like your traditional points north compass. This is like your Jack Sparrow. It takes you towards your dreams because they don't necessarily know the correct direction. But if you figure it out as you're going, you get somewhere much better. Thanks for coming today, Christopher. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Awesome. And we'll talk to you guys again soon. Until then, cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business, because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.